Well, thanks so much, Tom, for joining me today. Super excited we finally get to do this. Really excited about what you're building, your sort of journey in water. And obviously it's it's the resource of, of the world and of humanity. So obviously it's important we get this, we get this right. But before we get into sort of Bird Island Adventures and kind of what it is and its mission and vision, talk about your journey to, to get to that point to start the fund, just your journey and specifically in water, you know, in your career path around water and how it took you to start the fund. Yeah, for sure. And Grant, thanks so much for having me. It's really great to be here. Yes, yes, indeed. Water's um pretty important stuff. Yeah, so it's been a it's been a kind of an interesting sort of circuitous route. I think a lot of people who end up in water sort of feel like water happened to them rather than them happening to water. Um, <laughs> you sort of get sucked into a, a whirlpool vortex and never find yourself getting out again. It that's more a sort of reflection of it being a great place to spend time rather than not having yeah. any other options. So yeah, I mean, I chose sustainability like really quite consciously coming out of university in, in 2008, I was sort of pitched into the, uh, the middle of um, the great financial crisis. Not not hugely fun, um, but I sort of yeah. looked around at where, where where would be a good place to sort of put my, you know, hopefully sort of 50, 60 years of professional effort um, and decided that, you know, the planet could probably use another hand. So I, I went off to go and join, join the amazing team at ERM, which is the largest pure sustainability consultancy uh, now owned by by KKR. And uh, and really sort of learned my, learned my kind of trade there, looking over all sorts of different things, everything from the EU emissions trading scheme to all of the work that you would do on a portfolio of investments around renewable energy, just really kind of advising um, a lot of clients on sustainability strategy and, and related business cases. Um, but then in 2010, uh, the great folks at the Carbon Disclosure Project, um, they wanted to do their first water disclosure report. A great guy called Marcus Norton there was looking for somebody to do it pro bono. I was the cheapest person in the building. Um, so I was handed a USB with all of the, the data and strategies of of 150 of the global 300 and we sort of wow. wrote, wrote this report together which we launched at Bloomberg in London it, it was great and it, that sort of turned me into a de facto kind of water sustainability uh, guy I spent a lot of time talking to other other clients about you know water sustainability strategy how they should be thinking about it you know value at stake you know, all of the risk issues that was going on but obviously people were putting themselves back together after 2008 and it wasn't really the highest priority so then business school and then two early stage companies which were enormously instructive about kind of the process of company building basically but I was sort of rent an MBA um, and just as useless as you would imagine uh, a rent like that, that I would have been in the context of two really quite uh, really quite um, impressive and and an aspirational early stage companies and then really what brought me into water in a, in, a, in a concentrated way was in 2015 the opportunity came up was to go and join uh, Scott Bryan and the, the rest of the amazing team at Imagine H2O to kind of run mm. programming, which basically put me with sort of prime responsibility over the, their accelerator program. So it's an accelerator exclusively for early stage water founders. It's the hmm. best, best in the business. Yeah. Um, and so I just saw, you know, two and a half over the following five and a half years, you know, we built this up one foot in front of the other, but after kind of five and a half years, I'd seen about just under 3000 early stage uh, companies. Wow. I'd worked with 170 of the best founders in water from all over the world. And it was really clear that the degree of talent coming into this sector was increasing at a rate of knots and, and really the capital wasn't keeping pace. And so I figured that, you know, I, I at least had a shot at making the argument of um, of building the fund I wish to see while I was running the accelerator. And mercifully, a, a fantastic group of, of LPs uh, uh, kind of a, agreed with the argument. And so we did a final close early, earlier this year. 
we've already we've already put about sort of 55% of the fund to to work. We've got 16 companies in the portfolio. And that kind of brings us up to where we are at the moment, which is trying to build the seed fund of choice for the water sector, which um is foundational, enormous and and yeah. growing certainly in terms of talent coming in. Well, let's just talk about like water for a second, just foundationally. Sure. I think I guess what do people need to know about whether it's water health, water scarcity? I guess overall, what and obviously these these startups and founders are trying to solve different problems within water. But can you give us an overall theme of just the state of water now and sort of what what are we looking at and what and what are founders trying to solve within just the water sector? Absolutely. So this always kind of comes up like, so what do we mean by water? Do you right. mean kind of desalination or is this right. kind of low flow faucets? And it's like, well, yeah, kind of. I mean, those are two things that we would look at. Really, the best way I think to, to describe this is that we're really looking at uh, entrepreneurs and uh, well, founders and that are looking to provide products and services that are allow water and wastewater flows services to be delivered at the right quality quantity, price, place, and time. Like that's really what we're about because all five of those really need to be true for kind of a product to sing, but frankly, for, uh, you know, the, the sort of human interaction with water to kind of make make sense. When you think about water deficiencies, one of those things is off. I mean, the obvious one being a flood, like you've mm-hmm. got too much quantity there and usually the quality is off, et cetera. Um, and then in terms of scarcity, obviously you you, you don't have the quantity there, um, but often what the lack of quantity is coupled with a, uh, a, a lack of quality, but also it means that usually the price is off. So we're really trying to make sure that kind of the provision of water services, both water and wastewater, sort of stay in balance with with what human requirements uh, are. I think that the thing that's most often overlooked about water is the degree to which it is foundational to a whole bunch of different things, mm-hmm. especially across kind of the impact space. Now we're kind of explicitly, we do not pitch ourselves as an impact investment firm. Mm-hmm. Now we would have to go some not to have <laughs> impact. Right. Like, you know, I mean, in terms of what we're doing, like we expect by, you know, four to five years time when the companies that we've backed are really operating kind of at the degree of scale that we're expecting them to, to have have some really quite impressive like impact numbers but it's really really important that we don't put the cart before the horse and say really what we're trying to do is to solve half of the you know the epochal problem that we have which is 2.1 billion people without access to, to water right. quality and sanitation that obviously is an enormously uh, a tragic problem right but it's actually not that helpful from the entrepreneurial perspective what we're looking to do is to find those uh find these entrepreneurs that have the fundamental tenets of a business in place that just makes sense in the relatively immediate term and then could put one foot in front of the other to build a resilient business that makes sense financially because that is where the sustainability of impact comes from you know usually if you sort of put it the other way around um you're solving for the impact first and maybe the 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 uh the uh the financial sustainability is is a bit more of a long shot right. and then you know who cares what the the impact is and then on the water side of things for that impact for from the impact perspective when you actually sort of look at it water is pretty foundational to a whole bunch of other impact issues everything from healthcare right you know if you don't get the water right sure the, the rest of it is kind of like band-aid on a gunshot wound this is the it, it has to be 
Right. I mean, for everything from dysentery to the behavioral issues of uh, the behavioral issues downstream from lead poisoning, you know, mm. you can it, like treating the symptoms is pointless if you don't get the lead out of the, the water. Gender equity, for example, in a variety of emerging markets is usually the job of mm-hmm. the women of the household to secure the water supplies for that day or week. And obviously right. there's, there's a one-to-one trade-off here is that all the, all the time that you're spending uh, carrying water, which is extremely heavy, by the way, yeah. you know, a, a, a meter cubed weighs a metric ton. So, uh, you know, that's time that's not spent in school or doing homework or, you know, doing the other productive activities that should be uh, should be done. And that's even before you get to the sanitation issues and, and kind of all the rest of it. So we really do mean it when we say that this is the fundamental molecule, not just because you have to <laughs> like drink it every two to three days, otherwise you die. Sure. And that actually yeah. is the predicate of us being able to <laughs> produce food. It's it's really foundational to a whole bunch of other uh, issues that really lie at the heart of, uh, of of human beings being able to like self-actuate in the way that we want every human on the, on the planet to do. So, I mean, I, I'll just pause there before I get to the state of water. Now, I hope all of that like I hope all of that like makes makes sense. Well, because I think there's wherever you live, like in the world, your your relationship with water is might be pretty different, right? If you mm-hmm. go to some yeah. places, you you know you can't drink the faucet water, for example, yep. right? If you go to you know another place, it's fine. You know, people in uh, emerging markets have a different relationship with water. Like you said, you have to go get it, carry it back. It might not even be clean. Mm-hmm. It might be a process. Yet, you know, some markets you just you know, can drink tap water and it's fine. It's safe. Do you see startups trying to solve for both issues with water in sort of the developed world and then issues for water in the emerging markets? Do you see companies trying to solve on, on both of those lenses? Because obviously, it, it, it's all connected in, in, in some way or another, right? But I, I guess getting that 2.1 billion, right, to have sort of safe drinking water is great for the global economy and sort of impact is is what it is. But it's also the fact that people can be productive. They can, you know, live their dreams out, you know, start companies themselves if they want. But like yep. you said, it takes a lot of time just to like survive trying to get water, right? There's a lot of different things you can't do. Um, yes. My question is, is how do you... I guess, how do you solve for, you know, water, but, but you're also dealing with kind of two different worlds and how they interact with, with water. Yeah, absolutely. And it's something that we kind of keep an eye on. And this is where it's really important that we keep an eye on the ball in terms of our own. I mean, this is the sort of Berkshire Hathaway idea, but circles of competence, Mm -hmm. like, what is it that I am? I mean, it all sounds ridiculous, especially as a British person, self-aggrandizement isn't, this is my favorite thing, but you know, like, what is it that like, I've got a, an edge on, like, mm-hmm. what, what do I understand um, better than sort of most other, other people? And it's really important that especially early and we are a, we're a startup fund, um, yep. you know, it's really important that we stay out of trouble. And, and one of the ways in which you can get into trouble is to march off into operating context that you do not understand. Right. We see this all the time, actually just in water generally, which is really, really smart people who have done all well in lots of other areas come marching mm-hmm. into water mm-hmm. with a thesis because they see extremely large numbers yeah. and they say they see really big markets and they see all the you know this foundational aspect and that water's getting more scarce and all the rest of it and then they get into trouble because they don't appreciate the nuances you know they yeah. sort of end up putting capital in slightly head scratchy places for people who have been in this for a while and sort of understand where the landmines are buried so the same thing applies to i think the certainly this kind of the emerging market investing now i've, I've spent sort of a reasonable amount of time in and around companies who are who are you know doing amazing work in emerging markets whether that's in sub-saharan africa or south asia or, or southeast asia or where it might be yeah b- building what like specifically in those regions just like filtration systems or just 
Yeah, I mean, it's everything from filtration systems to really elegant non-mechanical chlorine dosing systems to the uh, infrastructure that you need to put around wells to make sure that they are not only put in, but then maintained. Right, right. Um, This is, uh, you know, active sanitation processing. So, you know, human waste to to get it into, you know, spreadable fertilizer and and then biogas. A a huge amount of, uh, of work being done on everything from water access to sanitation to measurement to mm-hmm. quality assu- quality assurance, quality monitoring. Like there's a massive amount of work that's being done. The issue that we run into most often, and this is, sounds terrible, is that I have a, quite a specific job. My my job is to is to respect the reason why the my LPs came to me. And you know, part of what they want absolutely is the is the impact for sure. But they're also looking for things that make sense on or, and make sense with a margin of safety on a financial basis. And it's quite difficult to hold up uh, businesses that are operating against businesses, say in, you know, for example, I don't know, we'll probably talk about them later, but Zwitterco in, in, in Boston, that just has a much higher likelihood of being able to have a higher gross yield Mm-hmm. of cash towards the fund and for my LPs, which is the reason why they're here, than it is for that it is for a company that has, you know, the unit economics just aren't as strong on a gross basis and they aren't as strong on a marginal basis usually. But the great thing is, is that we are seeing this changing. We've had, we saw three companies in India and I just saw two companies in uh, sub-Saharan Africa that were almost there. But the reason we had to say no was not actually because of the structure of the unit economics or of the founders themselves. Mm. It's because our inability to underwrite that operating environment. Mm. Like I don't know what I don't know about what's going on out there. And as a steward of my client's capital, it's really, really important that I don't just sort of wander off into an operating environment that I don't understand before we as a fund are specifically set up to be able to uh, make those bets. Now, at some point, does it make sense for BIV to have uh, an office in, I mean, let's call it, I mean, it could be Nairobi or Cape Town, mm-hmm, uh, mm-hmm. maybe Paris or London that would be able to do the 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 EMEA region. Would it make sense for us to have uh, an operation in Mumbai and Singapore or Sing- Singapore first to be able to do Southeast Asia and South Asia? Like, absolutely the answer is yes. But at the moment, I'm kind of a dude sitting in an Ikea chair and (laughs) God knows whatever is happening to my my mum, if she listens to this, is probably like, why don't you get a good chair? I'm just a dude sitting in an Ikea chair in in Brooklyn. And I spent my last eight years in San Francisco. And like the road of bad investments is littered from uh, with people who sort of sit in chairs in San Francisco and think that they really do understand the operating environment in Mali and Somaliland and South Sudan, Indonesia. Like it's really important we stay humble. And so we want to get there and we think that the caliber of business models is coming up. We think that the the, the cost structures are changing. We think that all of the things are aligning. But at the moment, we spend more time in US, Canada, Europe, because this is just a place where we have a margin of safety. And it annoys me. It annoys me, but it really is. It's the way in which you do good risk-adjusted investing, which is our job for the moment. And we're going to set ourselves up in the future to be able to to, to take on those kind of um, companies that we all know right. that we need. We talk about US, Canada, Europe. What are some of the water problems that those regions face? And what is sort of being, like what is being solved for 
yeah there what are some of the issues strap in grant how long how long have <laughs> i'm you, ready i'm in my how uh, long have you how long my have chair that is yeah, exactly. uh, it's like a foldable chair it's probably yeah, yeah, totally. the chair you have right. actually well if you get uncomfortable just let me know. i'm ready i'm ready uncomfortable slash bored okay so i mean it's uh, the first thing to say, I mean, I'll start in the in the US. The first thing to say is that the feds haven't put any money really into, or at least the federal support for water fell off a cliff at the end of the 70s and has never recovered. And when you sort of look at the design of uh, pretty much all water infrastructure, it's designed to a 40-year useful life. And that means that a huge proportion of the infrastructure is aged out basically. Or a lot of the problems that you're seeing in everything from, I mean, just we had one and a half inches of rain in New York the day before yesterday, and the pictures of the water falling into um, subway stations is uh, is to be seen to be believed. As somebody who is very proud of the London Underground, I'm even more proud of them now. Uh, and no shade. This is just, this is this is happening all over the country. And this, this manifests itself in everything from leakage rates to quality problems, to issues around budgets, to, you know, it's but it's a huge, it's just huge issues all over the place, just in terms of the physical infrastructure required to treat, move to the end user, whether it's a consumer or industrial, mm. and then do that in reverse. So take the water back from its use, move it back to where it's treated. And then the, the cycle can either begin again, either by discharge to the, the environment or through reuse. And so that's kind of the first one. Um, the second thing that is really playing on our mind at the moment, because it speaks to this idea of resilience, is actually very oddly a personnel issue. So the so the demographics of of the water uh, sector are very very top heavy uh, just in terms of age. It's also very heavily male and very heavily white, uh, mm-hmm. which is you know has its own set of kind of downstream issues, which have really been worked on to the credit of the of the sector, but it still remains uh, very true. But um, but demogra- demographically, we refer to it as the silver tsunami, um, which is the the, the coming uh, wave of retirements uh, mm-hmm. of people who work right. within these systems. Um, and the problem is is that the the is that when people walk out of those jobs to go and play golf in Tampa or whatever, is that the expertise required to run these systems, which are best thought of not as machines, but as organisms, that walks out of the door with them. And we are not talking about sophisticated sort of, you know, software, like non-contemporaneous remote work where everything is documented in Notion or whatever it is. And so it's quite easy to come and slot in. Right. Like these, these, a lot of these, um, these systems, because you're talking about kind of 148,000 water and waste water systems in the US alone. A lot of mm. these things are literally uh, like managed on pieces of paper, post-it notes and kind of a 1997 Dell PC and like no shade. Wow. Yeah, That is a reflection yeah. not of the expertise of the people who are running those systems. They are extraordinarily dedicated, uh, really, really smart professionals. It's, uh, it's, a, it's a reflection of the resources that they're, they're working with. So that's a second one. A third one, and I would say this is a long list, but this is the stuff that's like way up the top of our uh, of our our concern list is is water quality issues. You know, whether you're sort of you know uh, communities in the northern Central Valley that are dealing with everything from you know arsenic to one two three TCP, and then you move over to the rural communities of the northeast and and the Midwest that are are just starting to wake up to with what a P, what the concentration of the of PFAS and PFAS are the perfluoroalkyl substances. They're basically the the active ingredients in things like Teflon, um, extraordinarily good at uh, rejecting, um, uh, you know, water and oils and grease and, and all the rest of it, but also incredibly hard to break down. And as it turns out, enormously toxic. 
it's not an understatement to say that we have poisoned the world and it's starting to be a more a more visible story but we're only just at the tip of the iceberg of understanding what the uh what the ramifications of of PFAS are for um for the communities that, that obviously rely on on highly contaminated uh water sources we're just starting to see this this play out and so those are kind of one two and three and then if you're looking at Europe I mean you're really I mean it's sort of similar stuff but you're looking yeah. at everything from leakage rates to, to flood control to the availability of water for industrial processes if you're looking at what's happening in the Rhine we're at 14 points seven inches from the Rhine being impassable for, you know, things like food shipments to the middle of Europe. You know, this is, this is not, not good stuff. And then you've got, I mean, frankly, fire suppression, right? I mean, if you saw the pictures yesterday of of a section of London um, that got wiped out by wildfire in Wallingford, I believe it was, you know, this is crazy. It really yeah. is. It's it's nuts. And then you kind of so everywhere you look at everywhere you look within water, there are things to be worked on by smart entrepreneurs, right? Uh, what you're looking at is, you know, when we calculated it last year, we, you were looking at a 900 billion dollar market growing by about six percent a year, and so we're closing in on the trillion dollar market. That's both in the kind of capex and opex um, uh, spend, just in in sort of water and wastewater research services worldwide. So it is an enormous market, and <laughs> none of it. Like, let's put it this way. No one's talking about the metaverse in water. We are, we're, 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 there's a lot of help that's needed to make this resilient. And I'll just pause for a second. But like, the last thing I'll say is that everything that we are seeing um, is being magnified by climate change. For example, you know, the Salt Lake uh, next to Salt Lake City mm-hmm. uh, is drying up, is drying up at kind of a, a rate of knots. And what is being exposed is uh, is arsenic dust. Um, and so you get the wrong wind at the wrong speed, at the wrong direction. And what the good citizens of Salt Lake City, which is one of the fastest growing cities in America, mm-hmm. what you get is arsenic dust clouds uh, being layered over those those communities. This is like the, the, the depth to which this rabbit hole goes in water is, um, is constantly surprising even to me who only does this right um and so exactly. when you're exactly. talking about climate change it's just a magnifier and you know whether you say climate change is water change or if climate change is the shark water is its teeth or the tip of the spear i mean pick your metaphor water is what the way in which we steward water is fundamentally is the fundamental predicate of whether or not we successfully deal with whatever climate change we've baked into our future and judging by what's happening at the moment we've already baked in a good deal of climate change into our future and it sucks but the way in which we deal with it is really is predicated on how we deal with water and we're only just at the beginning of like widespread public understanding that that is actually the case this uh, there's so many so many questions i want to <laughs> i want to ask it's I a lot it's a lot yeah i i think the one just because I think it, it was kind of it was known to specifically if you live in the US, but also I think you know globally it probably reached a little bit, but sort of the what happened in Flint, Michigan. Yeah. Was that sort of an anomaly or it does is that happening in other places and it j- just hasn't got to that level yet, but it, it might happen? And and was that just like you said, was it kind of a perfect storm of sophisticated individuals retiring out of that, lack of investment in infrastructure? And it was kind of this perfect storm to have that happen, or was it something that was solvable through you know companies that that you're funding now, right? Through through sort of technology that enables you know these cities to to do this stuff more reasonable, maybe not at an affordable rate, but is it is it the fact that there's not a lack there's a lack of a way to actually upgrade the infrastructure, right? Yeah, is that an issue as well? But I guess when you when you heard it go when when it, when that stuff with Flint happened, 
Yeah. I guess like, what was your first response? And you're like, oh, I saw that coming. Right. Or was that, was it still a shock where you're like, yeah, this is not, this is inevitable. Yeah. No, like, I mean, no one saw it coming. I mean, you've got to assume kind of best in best intentions on, on the behalf of the people who were sort of responsible for the, for the decision. I mean, really that they were put in a situation where the, the budget was in such a mess right. that they saw an opportunity to save a, a large amount of money. Um, hopefully what we, what we learned from this is that let's make sure that anything to do with drinking water is down the bottom of That's the list. That's an untouchable that you, budget mark. Right that there. you mess, <laughs> that you just, you do not mess with it. And actually, yeah. you know, it's, it's one of the things that we, we, look for like if we're going to be investing in things in in that are and in around water quality that that touch the the um provision of, of clean water there has to be a margin of safety a mile wide on the performance of it because like mm-hmm. you do not mess with this stuff unless you absolutely have to but the flint issue was just an enormous tragedy born of I mean, kind of chemistry, right? Um, in that, when they changed their water supply, the, uh, the 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 difference in pH of the and the pH and the chemical makeup of the water that was coming in interacted with the pipes to to essentially leach water, uh, leach lead that had been basically in kind of set is basically steady state. I mean, not not great, and you know certainly there there, there was um, you know water in this lead in the water supply before that, and obviously you know the, the the lead pipes were there, but the change in the chemistry was what dumped you know a whole bunch of uh, of lead into that water which then obviously got into the, the bloodstreams of the of the people in there mm-hmm. so in that sense you know you don't get that many people changing their kind of overall water supply you know that doesn't happen every day it doesn't happen gotcha. every two weeks right and so and and then the political decisions leading up to that and uh, and the tightness of the budget and you know and all the rest of it yeah to some extent flint was uh, was absolutely a perfect storm but i think that there are things that are absolutely generalizable about uh, Flint that really need to be borne in mind. Um, and it's not that, you know, everywhere has like very, very high concentrations of lead. Now, sure. is there a massive lead problem in the US that needs to be fixed? And are there some really smart people like, you know, Megan Glover and Tony Ryan at 120 Water that are doing extraordinary things to be able to go through what actually happens, which is which needs to be the physical replacement of lead. People get kind of very excited about, you know, being able to use AI and machine learning to kind of, you know, identify 85% of the lead pipes. Yeah, well, okay, thank you. But actually what you need is direct observation of what is coming out of the tap, and what you need is replacement of uh, of these of this actual conduit. And so, you know, Flint was uh, was a, a tragedy that has you know a very very unfortunately served to like highlight this issue that is kind of ubiquitous. The second thing that is ubiquitous is that you know these like is the, is the underfunding of water mm. and wastewater services. Right. Finally, through the infrastructure bill, you know, you're starting to see at least a partial reawakening of federal support. Uh, for this, and then it was Arizona, I believe, that's just made available another 1.2 billion in in kind of water and wastewater related uh, funding. Water was actually the thing that was most resilient in the infrastructure bill. It was the thing that was cut least after um, it kind of you know got uh, slightly shredded by uh, Congress, as is always to happen with the uh, or as always happens with these these bills. It's one of these extraordinary things that it's actually one of the last things that is bipartisan is hmm. in water in our in America's slightly depressing uh, political setup. It, all of this is is wild underfunded relative to I mean on an absolute basis but relative to the metaverse but definitely <laughs> relative to the metaverse yeah exactly exactly this is the problem when um you you slightly kind of remove the the uh, at least in the part of public utilities you remove the the profit motive um uh from uh the the development of waste water and, and wastewater services anyway that's a whole rabbit hole we can go down yeah, yeah. but it, they are just wildly underfunded especially relative to their utility to to society which is that this is absolute. 
and I and I mean that very, very literally. Like, <laughs> you take this away. Like, if you don't supply water at the right quality, quantity, price, place, and time, the downstream the, meta, the metaverse are, doesn't happen. Right? Oh, I mean, totally, exactly. The, the, the things One of the things, invest, <laughs> yeah. this is a tangent, right? But when I watched Ready Player One, I was like, you know what? That looks depressing. <laughs> but like, these people still need to drink. They still need to wash. Yeah. They still need to like, yeah. you know, wa- the water industry yeah. is going to be just fine. Thank you very much. No matter what depressing future we, depressing, you know, future corner we kind of paint ourselves uh, into. This is one of the reasons why I think it's actually a good place to be investing because like, I can't really see a future in which like water is going to become kind of less important, right? And the, <laughs> the dynamics are going to be any less favorable of, you know, in for everything from infrastructure renewal to, you know, people being more aware of the issue and being, you know, willing and able to, to pay for the solutions that, you know, Im, uh, improve their access to water and wastewater services. Anyway, but just to go back to kind of the, the, the Flint issue and what we kind of learned from it is that we really need to make sure, and what's depressing in that this is, it's still going on in terms of the response to the Flint issue. Gradually things have got, you know, marginally better, but it's not like the world, it's not like the, the you know, the either the, the, the state or the Michigan state or, or federal government jumped on this issue and said never again. Right. You know, seven years on, we still don't really have a, a kind of full solution to it. And then the other thing that we, that, that comes out of it, um, the last thing I'll, I'll mention is, is the, is the predilection for Band-Aids. And so, of course, people just need water then and there. But the response is the provision of, you know, water in single-use plastic bottles, which is fine. And, you know, thank you very much to all of those corporates that quote unquote stood up and, you know, and 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 provided those bottles. It's tempting to think about what think about whether or not they were um, interested in building a consumer base of reliable consumers for after they stopped giving them away. Mm-hmm. Um, but I don't want to be too um I don't want to be too cynical. Really what you see time and again, um, and it, it's amazing to the degree to which this actually pops up is that things go wrong with water and then people put a band-aid on it rather than solving the source issue. Partially because the source issue is so expensive, especially right. in the context of centralized infrastructure. One of the really, really interesting themes that we're seeing is the, is the finally we're seeing the rise in decentralized uh, infrastructure. Now that's going to take a long time yeah. to manifest itself, but it's going to be tremendously important when we get there uh, and included in in, uh, in in decentralized infrastructure, which is you know up, up to and including the household level of, of water treatment um, but also water recycling um, is particularly important at the industrial level. But we'll also see uh, we'll see a, a takeoff in in grey water and and what's referred to as black water, which is basically um, fecally contaminated uh, water. That water being used round and around in right. the same building, the same system, sometimes the same household. Um, it's going to be a long road, but that's absolutely where where the world is going. Great. That's that's great to hear. Let's get into a little bit of the, the portfolio because we kind of sure. talked about the breadth of <laughs> of issues and problems. Yeah, what are some yeah, of yeah. The, what are some of the startups that you're excited about and, and what are they doing? What are their missions and visions? Yeah, sure. Um well we I mean the the, the first thing I always want to say about the, the portfolio is that I kind of hate that word. Um okay. I feel like uh I feel like you know artists have portfolios <laughs> and architects have portfolios and well, what shall it, we call it? You, no, yeah. no, and I don't I don't mean I'd like I'm no shame. Man, this is uh, this is uh, like this is it's what everybody refers to it, but I think it implies a a kind of a, a degree of creation on the part of on the part of venture funds, which is entirely unwarranted. Um, mm-hmm. Like the people who are created are the founders. We are very very lucky to be a very small part and hopefully a useful partner in the creation of these uh, of these companies. But I always think it's worth kind of mentioning that they are front and 
center. They are, it's an un- unimaginably hard job starting a, starting a company and, and we obviously salute them. So we've got 16 companies in at the moment and they cover a lot of ground, everything from atmospheric water generation. Um, the guys at Spout, Ruben and Tyler at Spout have built an extraordinary unit on only $200,000. And we've, we saw at least one other company spend $17 million <laughs> failing to build what, the, what these guys did on 200 grand, which is a countertop atmospheric water generation unit. They, they draw about a gallon to a gallon and a half a day out of the air, which essentially serves the the, the drinking water needs of a, a you know yeah, a family absolutely. of four. I so mean, is, you that can't, a consu- like, is it a consumer product? It's a consumer product. It's okay. a consumer product. And you know, and they're starting at the top end. It's very much the kind of Tesla logic of you, you know, you build the roadster and then you build the Model sure. S and then you yeah. sort of move towards the X and the three and you know, and then you come down the cost curve and maintain your margins and bring the bring the bring the price down uh, over time. Absolutely, that's what's going to happen. They're very very sensible company builders, but it's an extraordinary potential intervention because you know if you can take care of the drinking water um requirements of um you know people over and above i mean it's operational above 25 percent humidity um but anywhere above 50 percent you're like golden which takes care of a very very large proportion of the world's population like what you have is kind of an insurance policy on a household basis um for at least drinking water access and it's tremendously exciting because it's very easy for them to size up but it's really not very easy for other technologies to size down so that's kind of one example and then only i mean we touched on reuse and so I'll mention Zwitico. Alex and, and I have been working together. Alex Rappaport, the CEO, have been working together since uh, since 2018. He's a preternaturally talented um, company builder. Um, they've got a very exciting announcement uh, coming up shortly. Um, but really, like when you think about filtration, when you think about water treatment, the, the, the active element of industrial, um, well, it's not just industrial, it's also municipal water treatment, is, is usually the kind of the reverse osmosis membrane. But it just, just think about the membrane, basically. That's the thing that's a filter. It's basically a... It's basically a, a very thin sheet through which water is pushed, which takes out the nasties. That's the best way to understand a membrane. Um, and usually the process of pushing water through to take out the nasties means that the membrane itself gets all gunked up and and into a big mess and the chemistry changes and, and the rate at which you can push water through it just gets lower and lower until you have to replace that membrane. That's great business for the people who make that membrane. It is terrible business for the people who have to use that membrane because ideally what you would need is a a membrane that lasts as long as possible. That's important for like reducing replacement costs, but it's also really important for uptime. So uh, and so every time that you need to clean a membrane, you basically need to shut down whatever industrial process you're doing, but you also need to put, um, you know, water treatment facilities of all kinds kind of on ports, which sucks because cleaning happens all the time, anywhere between every 45 to 90 minutes. What Zwitico has made is a membrane that appears, I mean, you know, we don't want to say not to foul, uh, which is like not to get any worse under kind of um, the conditions of of the of their initial deployment, but it's maintaining performance for an alarmingly long time, and this means that they are going to be able to really fundamentally alter the economics of a whole bunch of things in water treatment. Which means that more people are going to invest in water treatment, which is good news for everything from surface water flows to uh, utilities that are having problems with um, water that's coming back down the sewer with far too high concentrations of you know the kind of nasties that would be able to be taken out by a filtration system that Zwitico enables. But it also has the Uber effect. You remember that was that there was this um this uh, famous study of, of Uber where the estimation of Uber's market size was, you know, the it was the size of the taxi market mi- minus kind of 10% because none of the taxis uh-huh. would kind of move over. And actually it turns out they underestimated the size of the market by <laughs> uh, an, uh, an order of magnitude, if not two orders of magnitude, because Uber created its own 
demand because cost structure and the, and the experience and the convenience were so different. You know, a lot of people moved into, you know, taking rides where they wouldn't otherwise. The logic exact is exactly right. the same in water treatment in the people who literally would not be able to treat what they're doing. You're talking about really hardcore dairy waste streams, for example. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Now you suddenly have an ability to filter this water on site and then put the water back into, into your operations. And it is a tremendously significant leap forward. And if they're right, and if they can work, if they can make it work and it already is working, we are talking about hundreds of billions of potential gallons of water reuse. You're just talking about water molecules hmm. going round and round and round the same processes, which just alleviates the pressure on all of the systems. And that's even before you get to monetizable and reusable uh, stuff that is isolated by Switticode systems. And then just to sort of give you another idea of how far yeah. we're going, like one of my, we've just moved to we just moved to Brooklyn. Uh, and so up the road is is uh, Bessie Schwartz and Beth Kelman, who are at the helm of Cloud to Street, which is super awesome company. Again, they've got a really, they've just had a, an amazing announcement alongside uh, Munich Re and I believe a company called Rainbow. They've been able to provide what's called parametric insurance. So it's insurance according to parameters. Um, so mm. basically from space, you can understand whether, you know, XYZ farmer in Colombia mm. um, has had a, a flood destroy his or her crop. Right. You can tell that um, from space now. Um, you need to be alarmingly good um, at hydrology and a variety of <laughs> other uh, data integration things, which uh, both Beth and Bessie are. That is a really huge potential deal. That is a really huge deal that is live now. And really what Cloud to Street are going to be able to do is to do that for the world. They're going to be able to underpin parametric insurance for everyone from homeowners to warehouse operators to um, to train and road operators to canals to, you know, everybody wow. that needs insurance because of either too much or lack of water. You know, Cloud to Street has got a massive advantage in the accuracy of, uh, of the accuracy of the appraisal of uh, flood and well, soon to be drought impacts as well. And they're such a fascinating case because they really answer a really important question about Earth observation, which is kind of so what? There was an extraordinary amount of stuff happening in Earth observation. I mean, obviously, like, you know, Starlink, um, well, it's not, sorry, not Starlink. It's the, um, you know, the constellations of microsatellites and, and CubeSats. And, you know, the improvements in in imagery. There's an amazing company called Albedo Space, which is run by an extraordinary co- entrepreneur called um, Topher. Oh, my God, he's going to kill me. Um, <laughs> uh, <laughs> sorry. Uh, Tofa Haddad. Um, anyway, they're extraordinary. They're, they're, they're going to be the first on the market with 10 centimeter resolution, which is ex- absolutely amazing. I mean, you're really going to be able to read road signs from, from space. But like with a lot of this stuff, the question is like, so what? Right. right. You know, if we right. have all of this data and we have all of this imagery, how do you actually make it useful in terms of, you know, products and solutions that make a meaningful difference in, in the industries of today? And Cloud to Street are just a really, really fantastic answer to that. And when you look at the the potential consequences of parametric parametric insurance and, and the rest of the stuff that they do, so they are the UN's flood monitoring partner. Um, they have the sort of most advanced database of, um, they were just on the cover of Nature, I think in uh, October, I believe, um, which is obviously a huge deal. Do they, anyway, we, so they yeah. they are actually an insurance company or a tech company that provides so they insurance are, companies. They are providing exactly. They're providing the data. They're providing right. the data that allows you know companies like Munich Re to be gotcha. able to provide insurance products mm-hmm. with a degree of certainty at both the underwriting right. and then at the claims appraisal side that was not possible uh, uh, before 
some uh, for, before a company of the sophistication of, of cloud industry. But now that they're here, it rips all of the costs out of the underwriting and all of the costs out of the claims process. It totally alters the the uh, the economics of the overall insurance process. So it's obviously a better deal for Munich Re, but it's also a much, 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 much better deal for the farmers because these insurance products can be provided at much, much, much lower cost while remaining economic for the insurance provider. With climate change and climate change being water change, what you have is an unpredictability of the location and quantity of water, too much, too little, whatever it is. And if you are an insurance underwriter and you are seeing this happen, you do not have a choice but to increase your premiums. Mm -hmm. And when you're looking at the farming market, when you're looking at the farming market, these are, again, incredibly smart people operating in essentially a zero margin business. I mean, some years your margins are much better, you know, but we, you've got to be able to, you know, save up to be able to, um, to, to cushion the years where it's not great. Any change in their cost structure, whether it's the cost of water, the cost of insurance, right? The cost of inputs, which we're just going to see at the moment. Like we're worried about like the cost of fertilizer um, and all other, you know, chemicals that are being used in the food production process. I mean, you're, you're, talking i mean like if you're lucky you're talking about uh 30% in some specialist chemicals chemicals you're looking at 400% this is not good because what you're talking up is blowing uh your is blowing up the uh the income statements and balance sheets of of, of the people that feed us there's actually, I mean, just to go follow this tangent a little bit, just given that we're here, there's kind of a, uh, an interesting, um, uh, there's kind of an interesting like thread of argument that often happens, which is, and you see this in Australia with the traders and the people who are looking to kind of um, do the really quite shitty thing, I think, of of um, of trying to corner water rights uh, in the ex- mm. expectation of being able to sell them for a higher price later when people get desperate. Yeah, yeah. No, we implicitly take the other side of that trade. I want to make sure they lose that bet. You know, if we can really get certain circularity going, if we can get efficiency going, if we can get crop resilience going, whatever it is, really the value of water rights should go down because water should be in, in abundance. That's a big, that's a big um, way to go. There's a long way to go until we've kind of achieved that, but that's very much the way in which we kind of look at it. But there is a kind of a viewpoint that like, if you hold the water, then everybody else is going to be at your mercy. And it sort of reminds me of kind of like economics 101 when you're thinking about actually the elasticities of the curves and the price elasticity. Like <laughs> farmers will stop producing. These are incredibly, really, really sophisticated, you know, economic agents. You know, when the time is there for the field to go fallow, they're not going to, you know, carry on producing the fruit and vegetable, fruits and vegetables and 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 uh, and um, and meals that we need. You know, they really are going to stop producing. And so if you think you're going to hold on to water and then sell sell it to farmers for some astronomical price, you're going to find out pretty quickly that there actually isn't a market for it. And so really, like, it's really important to respect the balance of the, uh, uh, the balance of the, um, the overall kind of economic e- ecosystem around water, because it behaves in all sorts of, it behaves in all sorts of, of funny ways. But even what, like we mentioned before, and obviously it's a, it's a, they invented a small consumer product mm-hmm. that basically, you know, turns air into water. Right. But mm-hmm. at scale, right. If I think these farmers spend, you know, 50, 60, 70, hundred grand on tractors or, or equipment, right. It's very expensive industry. Mm-hmm. I mean, I could see a world where they could just spend that on a massive water refill, you know, filtration system that now I'm very ignorant to all this. Right. But like, yeah. No, it could be. If we can make if we can make water from air, then you know there there are ways where it, it feels like it becomes a little bit much more of a the even playing field where hopefully they you know these farmers or whoever right are not 
at the beck and call of people who own water rights or, you know, companies who just, you know, produce all the water bottles. And now that that's $8 a water bottle now, right? Like that, see where was sure. that going to happen. But if we could yeah. all sort of produce our own water, then that's an investment that yeah. home should make, a business should make. Absolutely. In, and in, I totally, yeah, completely agree. I mean, the, the, like a lot of people within water laugh at atmospheric water generation, just because it hasn't come down the cost curve yet. We saw that Source uh, yesterday, um, led by Breakthrough Energy Ventures, but with participation from Microsoft and BlackRock and all the rest of it. There is 130 million. Um, they have these things called hydro panels. You know, I, I think they've done an absolutely extraordinary job, um, particularly on the kind of the, the product side of it. Um, and I think there's a very kind of interesting base there, but the, the, it's really important to get the cost right. Um, it's really important to get the cost right and there's, there's quite a lot of competition of people kind of coming in with you know with, with the potential to have a you know a very different kind of cost basis for the water that's that's provided you know the only thing that we see the reason we chose to go in via the consumer product route is that you know with the large scale stuff sure. not a lot to choose between them and that's good for the customer that's good for the customer there is going to be a winner there we're just not quite sure who that's going to be and it's very 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 difficult to pick who it's going to be in terms of the large scale providers of atmospheric water generation because basically you know everything is more sophisticated than this but you're kind of sticking a dehumidifier in a um or a bunch of dehumidifiers in a um in a shipping container and then sticking a pipe out the other end of it and just you know using that using that water mm-hmm. to whatever it is that you're you're doing a lot of people in water are going to hurl tomatoes at my head but you know i don't think that's too much of a de- uh, desimplification but your point is like absolutely well taken and like once these things come down the cost curve there is a a really really interesting kind of fundamental shift that comes in you know what happens if you know on top of or even attached to your air conditioner you have your atmospheric water generator right that is plugged straight into the wall that helps you know top up a system within your apartment what happens if in the inside of every rotoplast container in mexico is an atmospheric water generator that just constantly drips you know water into into the systems that are ubiquitous not only in mexico but all over uh all over you know the preponderance of the world basically like what happens when you do have alternative uh really really wide widespread alternative sources in addition to water recycling you get a fundamentally different right. structure right. of the water sector which can only be a good thing because it comes back to this idea of resilience. Now, we haven't quite got there yet in the venture world, but we are absolutely on the <laughs> edge of it because like we're looking with, you know, for the last, you know, few years we're really starting to see what climate change really means and it's horrifying right resilience to that it used to be a fight between mitigation and adaptation and the adaptation people were sort of dispatched for being naysayers and and like you're defeatist and all the rest of it it's all about mitigation yeah 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 no it is like it's super important to make sure that we're like running as many experiments on mitigation that we as we absolutely can and it's great 50 billion dollars went into climate tech last year awesome only about 400 million, <laughs> only about 400 million of that went into water. And it's not all about water in terms of adaptation. It's not all about water, but I like will, the hill I will absolutely die on is it looking into about 60 to 70% of it is about, is about, is about water in terms of adapting to climate change. And you include sea level rise in that. Look, there's going to be an awful mm-hmm. lot of poured concrete and all that kind of stuff to be able to do it, you know, et cetera, et cetera. But where you pour that concrete, like the way in which you design those systems, how you're thinking about the hydrology, this is all the stuff that's kind of in our on our wheelhouse. And like, and I, hopefully, this is now a settled debate that we are going to need both. 
We're going to need both mitigation and adaptation. If we're going to be able to like, you know, provide our children with a future that's better than the, the one that we live in, which is the fundamental responsibility of, of any generation. And I, you know, and, and I think people are kind of waiting, waking up to that. And hopefully we can do a reasonable job uh, of identifying the founders that, you know, can prove that there is a, there is a good amount of, of frankly, money to be made in this because you know money attracts talent and you know yep. money attracts more capital and with more capital you can run more experiments because sure as hell 400 million in the banner year like it was right. 5x the previous clean tech quote unquote boom from 08, uh, from 06 to 11 which was only 10 billion it was 5x the previous boom in one year we are we're taking this seriously and to some extent like our response is now I think is kind of a, a done deal it's like a fait accompli because because you've got too many smart people running too many experiments, doing too many interesting things for us not to be able to dig ourselves out of this hole. But that is not true in water, and we need to make it true. Is there conversations around subsidies for these sort of water products? You know, just, I mean, farmers get subsidies, oil companies get subsidies, Tesla got subsidies. Here in the Netherlands, they're subsidizing. Uh, Watch out, Grant. Yeah, well, yeah. It, what, what, it, it pisses me it, off more than anything else. In the whole well, it, it just seems like an obvious thing. Like <laughs> if we can get clean water into people's homes, and it's right now, you know, people buy TVs right at fifteen hundred dollars or eight hundred dollars. Yeah, yeah. It, it it would seem that I don't know it would be reasonable to say hey, <laughs> and obviously it's a choice for 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 a family and a household to say hey, we're going to spend you know, 500, 800 bucks on this you know water sanitation sort of product, but we have clean water in our homes, fresh it. I mean, that's obviously something that families, but if there's, you know, a subsidy of some sort where we seem to subsidize, it's it's just weird, like how some things get subsidized and some, but is there any conversations around that possibility? I know maybe not now, but in the future to kind of get, initially get costs down yep. um, for people to understand the worth of, of having something like this. Yeah, I'm, I'm pretty strident about this. Um, and I'm sure it's much more nuanced. Everything always is. But really, I mean, if you look at the if you look at the provision of um, subsidies, it's it's usually uh, at the very least, it's correlated with the degree to which, you know, the special interest groups have done a good sure. job. I mean, we're talking about the US yeah. here, basically. Yeah, yeah. It's also not not true in Brussels, etc. Especially interest groups have been able to go and quote unquote, make their case. Um, and by make their case is support a re-election campaign. Um, and then as if by magic, you know, there's an awful lot of let's just call them market distortionary uh, provisions that make the make the business models of um, a variety of different things a hell of a lot easier to do. In the case of solar, that is awesome. In the case of oil and gas, it is, um, in my opinion, much less awesome. It would be much nicer if they were forced to compete on a level playing field with um, you know solar wind, battery storage, um, all of this kind of stuff. So when you get to the water side of things, one of the things that's really always annoyed me is that water. I would like to see what happened if the water and wastewater unions walked out. I'm sure they're not allowed to by law. I'm not a, right. um, a lawyer by any means, but we don't punch our weight in water. We really are the fundamental molecule. We work it. We, we provide the fundamental molecule and the fundamental services that allow society to exist. Like what happens when your toilet doesn't flush, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. right? Stuff gets real really quickly when your yep. tap comes on. Fast. You can't, you yeah. can't, you can't get, uh, you can't trust it. And we just, we just don't know how to go and, you know, start being the 800 pound gorilla as a, as a sector that we absolutely should be. I mean, even if you're just talking in terms of dollars and cents, like the ROI that the, the the oil and gas crew get on what they spend on lobbying is 
Mm. I just calculated it's about 250x. I mean, the, the, like it gets paid back in about like just under two days or something completely ridiculous. Wow. Um, in terms of the maintenance of the subsidies, in terms of what they spend every year to maintain those those subsidies. Whereas water, like, you know, the water majors kind of uh, just sort of ish kind of, and then we all pat ourselves back on the back for doing a fly-in for like the two days to go and have conversations with, you know, senators and congressmen. And they've all of the senators and congressmen have forgotten about those conversations about 15 minutes before they finished. We have a bat to wield and we choose not to wield it. And that's partially because we're crap at telling our story, mm-hmm. right? We're getting better, but we're still crap at it. And, you know, if we're really talking about fundamentally changing the economics and really safeguarding uh, the access to water, which in America is embarrassing in 2022, it really is. I mean, just looking at Catherine Flowers' work in, in the Southeastern states, the, the, the inability of people to access basic sewage services in America in 2022 is is absurd. But we haven't made that case. But on the other side of it, yes. I mean, in terms of things, especially around, you know, there are uh, great work that's being, you know, done on, you know, subsidies for all sorts of consumer related services to reduce individual footprints. I kind of like hate that overall idea because it transfers <laughs> the it transfers the responsibility for like what's going on in terms of the water and energy balance to the consumer rather than the people who actually use most of it, which is not the consumer. It was an ingenious idea by the energy industry uh, in the <laughs> 90s. Anyway, there is support. It's getting a bit better in the infrastructure bill, but it's all going to go to the centers of populations. And, and the people that lose out are going to be like, as ever, the people who are least able to least able to pay and the least able to deal with it. I mean, this is a fundamental issue of, of equity that we haven't sorted out yet. But really, I think step one is that like, you know, <laughs> let's see what happens when when actually we use when the water sector uses its full political power, because I think we would be able to make changes and, and make changes fast. We just, you know, we've got to tell our story as tell our story much, much better to the public. As I say, that is changing. Um, But we need to be, you know, if it's going to be a corrupt system, just go play the game, become a more important part of someone's re-election campaign than whatever. Well, hey, I mean, if you... you, (laughs) Yeah, exactly. At least it's like, it's a a resource we all need to live and survive, right? Yeah, I just think it's a little bit different. Stop pretending the game is anything other than it is and go play it. Well, this this is my next, I want to end on these two questions. The the first would be around, you mentioned decentralized infrastructure before. Mm -hmm. Can you touch on that a little bit more and kind of what that means specifically to water? Yeah, sure. So, I mean, really what you're talking about is that at the moment you kind of have a centralized drinking water treatment plant, then you have a bunch of pipes that takes it out to houses. And then there's a whole bunch of pipes to take it back to a wastewater treatment plant. And either the treated water is then passed back to the drinking water plant or it's discharged into uh, either surface water or aquifers or, or, or whatever it might be. That's the sort of basic structure of the provision of, of water at the at the consumer and frankly, a lot of the industrial scale. Water is really heavy and it costs a lot to pump and a lot of the pipes are broken. You know, mm-hmm. even in California, you're looking at about 20, 18 to 20% leakage rate. So you treat the water and then you put it into a pipe and only 80% of the <laughs> water that you've treated at vast expense and vast energy and chemical expense, as not to mention the, the expertise of the people who are running those plants, like a fifth of that, like one in every five gallons just kind of falls out of the pipe into into the world. And it, that goes up to kind of like a really amazing kind of leakage rates of kind of 50% in, in other cities. And it's, it's, it's kind of a 
crazy um, situation. Like as you're looking at new communities, um, and I'll bring to the sort of two examples. Firstly, on a kind of on a community basis, like wouldn't it be make a lot more sense if you had uh, like a micro drinking water plant and a micing micro wastewater plant? So you would have to pump this stuff less mm-hmm. far. The pipes would be much easier to maintain. The energy draw would be uh, much less and people would be much closer to these vital services. So they would appreciate it much more. I mean, you can go into all of it. Uh, you can go into all sure, of the, sure. the, the sort of the issues around it, but that's kind of like the fundamental idea. Then you have this at the at the individual household level. What happens if you were able to isolate the water that's like not fecally contaminated? So anything that comes from the washing machines or the sinks or the, mm-hmm, you know, the, mm-hmm. uh, the water that's running off in the garden or like whatever it is and put that around a circular loop. There are some really interesting stuff going on. And then you have companies like Epic Clean Tech, um, which is starting in starting in California, which is, you know, according to, you know, SFPUC or, or under the new regulations, every high rise building, I forget what the threshold is, has to have a black water treatment system in the basement that allows you to uh, treat that water on site. Sorry, purple pipe. No, it's sorry. Black water is for everything over a square block in Mumbai or everything up to including a square block in Mumbai. Now it has to have its own interior treatment system. It has to be able to be fundamentally off-grid in terms of wastewater treatment. In San Francisco, what Epic Cleantech are doing, they treat all of the solids. Um, some of it is discharged to the sewer, but a lot of the water, almost all of the water divided between what is called gray, which is non-fecally contaminated, and then fecally contaminated is then recycled through the building. And they have, I believe, uh, five or seven deployments now in, in LA and in San Francisco. And this is just how buildings will be built in the future, is that they are going to, you know, all high-rises will have the, uh, the capacity to be able to do their own treatment on site. Uh, and then in terms of the industrial side of things, you know, being able to have a uh, a far, far more effective uh, water treatment system that minimizes the amount of water that's being put out into the sewer or being trucked away, and then pushing that water round and round is basically just anything that doesn't hit a trend, a, a centralized treatment plant. So the stuff that you see by the side of the world with the a side of the road with those, you know, large circles, or when you're flying overhead with the kind of like those, those arms reaching into the center, you've all kind of seen them. Those, they really, really big. Now they really benefit from economies of scale. And so what you need to do is to get to kind of delivered cost parity. Well, not necessarily delivered cost parity because often it's kind of a, a blend of these things. And there are lots and lots of tailwinds in that one of the stealth taxes, especially for businesses, has been like the rapid increase in sewerage costs. So it's it's um, rather than uh, increasing the cost of the water that comes in the front, they did increase the cost of taking the water way out the back in order to make, um, make their uh, kind of economics make sense. And that creates the conditions, the economic conditions for people who uh, can reduce the amount of water that you need to put into the sewer, um, like Epic Clean Tech and, and others, uh, to be able to come in and, and have this make sense on a on a unit economic basis. And so there's a huge amount of effort being uh, put in put into it, and it's tremendously exciting because a decentralized future is where it's going. The question, as always, is how fast. Last question. <laughs> Thank you for your time so much. I think going back to sort of the lobbying efforts, right, and how oil and a bunch of other sort of private industries can do that, is that because it was it it was never like government run at any point, right? Where it's it's almost like you know pay paying for software and it's been free for so long. <laughs> it's like you know a lot of people is YouTube's free, so they do that. A lot of not many people pay for YouTube, right? Because water has been a government provided resource for so long. Do you yeah. think that hampers it in, in that it's it's sort of just like you say it's it's sort of an archaic model for something that's so important? Yeah, yeah. It, it it's a scary way to say this because when you say it, I think a lot of negative antlers will go up, and I agree, I am one of them. But I believe in founders so much, and I believe 
in the ability for companies to do good, they're always going to be bad companies, right? Like it's impossible to, to not, right? Just does the human, mm. human nature of it. Yeah, yeah. But the idea of sort of a, not necessarily like a privatization of water, but the ability for the government to grant private companies, just like we, like the government doesn't build planes and rockets and, you know, tanks, right? We, we pay private businesses to do that. Mm-hmm. Is that perhaps, would that be beneficial to the, to the industry or the sector is to get the private involved, more of a private public partnership? There are all sorts of, um, you know, privately held companies that will do design, design, build, design, build, operate, design, build, operate, and, uh, and um, design, build, operate. And then sometimes they'll transfer it. Sometimes they won't, mm-hmm. you know, there, there is a, there are a lot of these models out there and there are, there are private companies that, you know, I mean, American water being one of them, Aqua America, Suez, mm-hmm. et cetera, that, that operate a lot of these systems and they make money in the same way that, you know, other utilities are, which is basically a, uh, they're allowed to earn a, a return on the capital, the, the capital that they, that they invest. Best. Um, essentially, that's how they do it. They obviously take in uh, um, rates from uh, the people to whom they provide their services, but in you know they they have a kind of a, a cap rate that they are they're allowed to provide. So it's fundamentally predicated on the way in which they maintain their services. It works works really well. There is a fundamental limiting factor here. Right. So in the UK, they did this, and the because they only provide of, a service, not the, necessarily a product. Right. And so yeah, exactly. So the, the, what they're what they're providing. Is is adequate services for sewerage and and uh, right. um, and and water out of the um, and water out of the uh, delivered water out of the drink uh, the the drinking water plant. So they'll obviously oversee it, but what's being installed is is you know it's not like white labeled by the it's not like a product of the city of Oakland. They're going to be using a silum stack or a sewer stack or an evoqua stack or like whatever it is or a combination of all of the above. And so it's not really it's it, it's not about the full privatization because some of the best water utilities are public entities, right? right? Yep. Um, this is. Not not, it's not like all of the public entities are a basket case and all of the private entities are like awesome, awesome, awesome toast. And then actually like what you saw in the UK was that they basically dividended out all of the surface as surplus and then <laughs> didn't and then didn't actually invest anywhere near as much as they, well, I suppose should have done. Um, it's a value judgment, but uh, should have done in the, in, in the, you know, the actual, and uh, the actual services because they decided that was a better economic outcome for their shoulders, the shareholders, because that's what they're required to do by law is act in the best inter- financial interest of their shareholders that's a whole different kettle of fish but really i think like where you started that question was kind of an interesting one and probably a good note to end on is is the is kind of this idea of the value of water water's quite tricky because people are like yeah but how much is water actually worth and right. you come up to the conclusion that actually the economic value of water is total because if you don't have water you don't have operations and so nobody likes that answer so the question is so it really becomes like what's the value of water the value of water is what um you know the finance professionals in xyz organization is kind of willing to pay for it while maintaining, uh, you know, your particular operation as being economic, essentially. What you are seeing is an increasing willingness to pay for water, both on the consumer side and yeah. on the company side of things, because there is an appreciation that we are in a pretty tricky place. That's, you know, especially true in the Southwestern states in the US, but it's true really all over the, the world. But this is a massive equity issue just because like water itself is a regressive tax. Um, if you stick up the uh, the price of water, it disproportionately impacts those least able to pay because it is a flat tax because everybody needs it. Yep. 
um, the city of Philadelphia and various others, uh, I've done some really interesting stuff on, uh, on kind of, uh, I mean, sliding scale, or I mean, it's the best way to think about it is basically means tested uh, pricing. But the, the perception of the value of water and the value of water correlation, various others have done a really, really good, good job um, around this really is, is, is kind of the whole ball game because if we did actually price water according to utility god knows where we'd end up but it would be awfully <laughs> expensive well that's what I, that's what i'm saying it would be awfully expensive it just needs to be slightly more expensive especially for those most able to pay right it needs to be commercially slightly more expensive and in times of inflation that's like really it's really tough but we're going to have some really really hard trade-offs but you know I, the, the, I, the perception guess, of the value yeah. of water is is crucial that, that that was kind of what i was trying to get to it was a, it was a bad way of framing the question by me because like we all pay a water bill, right? Yep. It's not like it's just we just know, don't care about free, it. Nobody right? knows that. Nobody knows how it, much it is, right? Exactly. We know how much we pay for our cell phone. We have no idea how much we pay for water. But we're still paying for water. The, the I guess the issue is is that if it's bad, there's not another alternative, right? It's just you still have to pay even for inadequate sort of water systems or or yeah or literally poisoned right? poison poison exactly. Right? So like yeah. I guess my point was that at that level right this uh, let the marketplace you know featureize it do some certain things whatever it may be you're you're already paying it anyway right and it's just like well what if there was a, a sort of open market to provide the services it that could be to me that could be interesting because if a person is not <laughs> still paying that 50 100 bucks a month for water from the yeah. government uh, but the, like i mean but this is where company, yeah, yeah this is where like recycling and you know, yeah, sorry, exactly. generation and, and all the rest of it, like, like comes in at the consumer side of things anyway, is that once it gets, you know, expensive enough, what you have then is a, you know, is a, a monthly payment from a household where you can compare the value of, you know, a box that creates water and on the countertop or in the garden or whatever it is, or a recycling system that allows you to, you know, reuse, um, reuse what you do for your washing up as your what you water the garden with or like whatever it is like as prices climb yeah we're already seeing exactly what you're talking about which is the economic conditions has been one of the one of the tailwinds against which we've started this fund right is that like actually the investment in consumer products but also like you know the industrial products that kind of get to the same thing like the the the, the business case is now it's becoming a light line item that people care about not only in terms of like a risk what happens if we run out of water but also like, Jesus Christ, is that my water bill? Like right. we're getting to that point. Right. And that's, and that's great. That's, for, that's for great sure. for founders because like, you know, people are now asking themselves some serious, some serious questions. Yeah. I mean, if you have to pay for it, you might as well get what you pay for at some level. Right. Just, that just makes sense. <laughs> yep. Exactly. Um, all right. Well, Market so economics. Much. Yeah. Thank yeah. you so much, Tom. Like this was, I know we went long on this one, uh, but I super appreciate your time. No, best huge pleasure. Luck. Best of luck with the fun, man. Thank you. And, I really appreciate and, it. It's been a huge pleasure. I love this. Um, I, I love your show. So it's really is a, is a great privilege to be on. Thank you. Thank you so much for having me on to talk at slight length about the <laughs> fundamental molecules. Sorry if I was slightly verbose, as you can probably tell, I, I love this stuff. But yeah, thank you so much for, for taking the time. I appreciate it. Love it. Thank you so much.